Hello, how you doing? I'm Craig Parkinson. You are listening to the Two Shot Podcast. Sit yourself down, pop the kettle on. We're going to have a nice old chat. Who's it with this week? I'm going to tell you right now. fantastic week um me and producer griff uh, have come south we've been welcomed into the home or museum that'll become clearer throughout the episode of uh, andy nyman it's uh i knew it'd be good i knew it'd be a great chat i know andy a little bit we've worked together uh on a play once uh but yeah i didn't think it'd be this good even i was gripped with what he was talking about we touch on all sorts of stuff um, which I'm not even going to tell you. Just listen. It's a great chat. Um, and I'll see you at the end. This is Andy Diamond. I, I was telling Griff this morning, I was walking to London Bridge and in the middle of the road was a squirrel gripped to the concrete, cars going over him, lasting right in the middle. It was like oh. a cartoon. So I had to stop the traffic. I stopped this double decker bus. I just stopped. And I was trying to shoo this little squirrel off the ground so he wasn't going to get killed. And it was frozen there, frozen with fear. And I had to literally volley him and sort of shove him with my feet and volley him up onto the pavement and left him by a lamppost. And this bus driver just gave me double thumbs up. Oh, how sweet. Which I thought, I said to Griff, I said, I think that's maybe a good omen for today. Mm. You've got a full. Full, you've got a big old day. I think you're going to say that the squirrel's going to beat you and now you've got rabies. No, no, no. I, I mean, I did think about picking him up and then I, I, I thought against yeah. it. Um, so, I mean, I know this is a podcast, but I wish we... Do you think we can describe where we are? You can describe it, yeah. We'll try to. How would you describe it? Because there's lots of <laughs> elements. Basically, we're in uh, Andy's house and in his study slash museum... Um, there's, every, there's, there's, there's everything from uh, film posters to old joke shops, uh, barber. What did they call those barber shops? That's things? a barber pole. A barber pole. Yeah, which is from the barber shop at the top of the road. I've been having my hair cut at since for twenty, God Almighty, almost thirty years. Did it close down? Oh, well, they've moved it actually, but they changed their pole, and I was going past, and it was like. Do you want this? You just give it here. Yeah. That's a, a yeah. fine. Had my hair cut there and a shave there on my wedding day. Did you? Yeah. Yeah. Al- Alexander's Barber in Hammersmith. That's anyway. lovely. But I guess this room, it it's sort of like the inside of my head, I think, really. Because it's, you know, aside from family, it's the sort of things that I love most, which are films. Magic. Magic. Horror. And quite a lot of sort of Jewish comedy stuff as well, actually, in that little section over there. And toys. Because even though there's a lot of stuff in this room, it does look quite ordered. It is. It's probably... We've got a lot of stuff, generally. We are sort of collectory, obsessive-y. And this is probably, of all the rooms in the house, this is probably the most ordered. 
which gives you some measure. I can lay my hands on most things that I know. I know where they are and I know what sections there are as well. Yeah. Are you, are you quite meticulous with that, that you like things the not, way they uh, are? Or? A bit. Not super meticulous, but but if I'm working in here, I mean, it's a great room to be inspired in because it's all the things that I love. But equally, it's a great room to get distracted in. I was going to say. Because I'll come up here and it's like, fucking hell, you know, I'll be here. You know, I don't want to go back down because I just love it. I do love it. Yeah. So it's a place to be distracted, but also to create as well. Yeah, I'll come up here to learn lines and I'll come up here to write or work with Jeremy or you know, work with Darren, if I work with Darren on stuff, sometimes we'll come here. So it's a bit of everything, really. And bits of my childhood. I do like to hold on to things that I loved as a kid. I've still got quite a lot of that. Oh, yeah? Yeah, I have, and I've got a lot of it on display because I think... Really, not sort of exactly the same, really and truly, you know. Do you have good memories of Yeah, fantastic up? memories. Because we were talking about Blackpool before, and yeah. obviously I know you've been to Blackpool a lot. Yeah. I've never been to Leicester. What was it like growing up there? I loved it. I absolutely loved it and had a, ve- you know, what a gift to be able to say I had a blissful, happy childhood. I what, mean, did, what did your parents do? Dad was a dentist. Was he? Yeah, an HS dentist at a practice in Leicester. Um, Mum, housewife, raised three of us, three kids. Uh, what, 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 what siblings have you got? Two sisters. Two I, sisters? I'm in the middle. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, but I think like a lot of the Midlands, it's a, it's a bit of a dump. And I say that with all the warmth I can, because yeah. I still like going home to Leicester. But a lot of the things that were wonderful about it have sort of been destroyed. The town centre is a shell of what it was, you know. And every now and then they put up a new fancy pants centre, shopping centre, which means it'll kill the shopping mall they built 20 years ago that killed the high street. Yeah. And one of the shining lights of Leicester is this incredible Roman market. I mean, it's just, it had the mar- just the best market, one of the best markets in the country, probably. It was famous for it. And I, they're just, you know, between the council trying to close it and kill it and not letting buses go there anymore and, you know, I mean, and supermarkets, that sort of a shadow of its former self. So I still like going back and my mum's still there and I've got friends there and I feel safe and cosy and nostalgic when I'm there. But... You know, I'd be lying if I said it's the greatest city yeah. I've ever been to. Well, it's that thing, isn't it? If you're if you're from a place, you're all right to slag it off. But if somebody else slags it off, you get a bit territorial. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And and th- it's not like I'm slagging it off. It, it's a frustration, really. Of course, because you want it to be something because more than it is. Because you want it to be, you know, what it was, and you can't yeah. understand a lot of the time. I think that's just. I think that's probably a mix of a getting older and b the speed with which things seem to change now and also the sort of endless greed that seems to be go above everything else in modern Which is society. happening in a lot of places, yeah, a lot of towns everywhere. and cities everywhere. Yeah, everywhere. How was school for you, Andy? Um, well, sort of happy, I suppose. I mean, I was lazy. Well, yeah. Yeah, yeah. God, because you... Of all the things, the, the little I know of you, I would never... Attribute that word to you at all? Well, because the things you know of me, they're like the 
two or three things that I love. So those things, drama, you know, which was all the sort of was then, drama and, you know, video nasties, which was by the time I was 15, it was that video nasty boom. So the horror film thing was that obsession had started. Did, Though, that, did that start very young for you? Well, the horror thing really started, I was I was very, very scared of stuff when I was a kid. Couldn't watch scary stuff. And to cut a long story short, really what happened was Flash Gordon was on at the pictures at the ABC in Leicester. Right. So we were all going to go as a family and I'd have been 14, I think. And my sister, who was a couple of years older than me and much braver than me, but she was also a liar. She was a, she was a really manipulative liar. <laughs> Brilliant. She's great. But, and she said, oh, come and see this with me. Don't go and see Flash Gordon. It'll be rubbish. There's this thing on the fog and it's a double A, so it won't be scary. Come and see that. And it was on in the ABC as well. So mum and dad were like, well, if you two want to go see the fog, go and see the fog and we'll see uh, Flash Gordon and we'll meet in the potato shop afterwards, <laughs> which is next door to it. <laughs> Fucking hell. I mean, the fog terrified me. It's so, it's John Carpenter film. and It's the, the, the lighthouse the one. one exactly. Yeah. yeah, the one he'd made after Halloween. And and it's a, just a brilliant, brilliant, really scary, effective old ghost story. And that just did for me. In a fantastic way. I then was like, oh my God, who is this guy, John Carpenter? What else has he made? So I watched Halloween, which terrified me. But then, I think I watched Halloween. It would have just been on telly and I'd taped it. And I must have watched it 20 times, honestly, just on an obsessive loop. And that was around the time then that the video Nasty Boom kicked off. And we didn't have a VHS. I remember the first time my dad came back from the video shop with a, you know, you'd rent a machine and two videos for a tenner overnight. And a tenner was a lot. I mean, it felt like, wow. And it was one of those machines you'd have to pull the big clunky button down. So that became a bit of a thing was me and, you know, a couple of mates would go and you'd save up and you'd rent a VHS and you'd schlep this, walk home with this VHS machine and two videos of films you'd just never heard of and directors that, it was like a whole world of cinema that, I mean, let alone, it's easy with that world to sort of write it off as, oh, it was just lots of nasty, badly made shit that was suddenly, but it wasn't. I mean, it would these were like visionary Italian directors that you'd never really had a chance to see their work. Yeah. You didn't know that when you were just renting it and it said extreme violence sticker on the front. But now, retrospectively, part of the reason the impact was so incredible was you were watching stuff the like of which you'd never seen. So as a, you know, as in my formative years, that was a massive thing. And that's me and Jeremy Dyson, who have just done ghost stories, you know, we're oldest mates, known each other since we were 15. That was a massive bonding thing for us. You know, so the first time I went up to Leeds to see Jeremy... You know, we went and our first night rented The Exterminator right. and um, The Beyond, the Lucio Fulci film. You know, so anyway, I sidelined a bit. But it became, yeah, a massive, massive obsession. So younger listeners just hearing that story will go, what's a VHS? They won't even know what that is. Well, it's an amazing thing because what you're denied now, and look, I mean, again, this is sort of a getting older and then you sort of 
well, what's wrong with it? It's not that it's wrong with it, but what you're denied is the hunt now for stuff. And, you know, the closest you get is if you're looking for something on eBay that you can't find and, you you know, something nostalgic and you're tracking it down or, you know. But the fact that when you're working now, if you're like, what's that bit in that film? And if you can't see it on iTunes, Netflix, Amazon, YouTube, you can just literally find, what's that, you know, that bit in Mama where she attacks the, hold on a sec, there it is. It's on YouTube. Dumb. I mean, that's an that's an extraordinary, brilliant, terrible gift. Yeah, accessibility. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everything. But yeah, I mean, you can't get your head around the fact that the reason you couldn't wait for the Radio Times, TV Times at Christmas to come out and see what films are coming on is because, oh my God, Raiders of the Lost Ark is going to be on yeah. telly. And you couldn't record it. That was it. And if something's at the pictures and you've missed it, you've missed it. You don't know when you'll see it again. Did you used to go through the radio? I used to love the radio, getting the radio. It's the only time we ever got the radio yeah. times was at Christmas because it was that big, almost yeah. yellow pages Double style. Issue. Yeah, yeah. And we used to. I used to go oh. through and we used to highlight. Well, what do you want to watch? Right, give us another colour. Yes. I want to watch that. What are you watching? You want to watch that? Well, we've got a clash here of times. Yeah. Where you're like, we've only got one telly. Here. I don't know what we're going to do. We we'll have to yeah. flip through it. But it was a, it was a good thing to do. Yeah. Don't do that anymore. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely, always circling that. Yeah. And when you were, <clears throat> did you did you have drama at primary school? I suppose mm, not, really. not really. Just so you would have done not sort really. of your Christmas plays in yeah, and things I like that. Yeah, I did school plays, which were always a bit. I mean, you didn't really do drama. We didn't do drama at school. Did you do it at high really? school? Um, do you mean I'm not being facetious when you say high school? Do you mean secondary school? I do. Yeah. Um, Yes, but again, not. It wasn't like a drama class or a drama club. I think once a year they'd do a play. So there was nothing on the syllabus. No, nothing. Did you Did you know that that was something you wanted to do at that time? Not really. I knew I wanted to do something with English, right? Because I, I felt like I had an aptitude for that. Slash, I didn't have to learn anything because I well I know English. I speak it. Right. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so. You know, all English lit, because she used to have to do English language and English lit. And I was always a bit like, oh, I've got to read all those books. Haven't I? That's a bit lazy. I don't know, really want to do that. Um, so the school play would come along and I'd think, oh, that'd be a good, fun thing to do. So I did a, did a couple of them. But then it was actually my mum who I'd been put on report at school by my parents, I should say. By, by yeah. your parents? Yeah, one day I was sitting in class and uh, my mate Nino knocked me and said, isn't that your dad's car? And I was like, no, why would my dad's car be in the... And then looked down and thought, fuck, that is my dad's car. (laughs) And they basically got in and said, he's just not, what is he doing? It wasn't a posh school, it's just a, you know, comp. What's he doing? He's just not working at all, not doing anything. So they requested you get put on report? Yeah. I've never heard that before. That's brilliant. Yeah. So, you know, I used to have to go in with my homework, have the teacher sign that I'd done my homework at the end of each day, go to Mr. Blount, I think his name was, the deputy head, or Mr. Orton, the head. God, I can't believe I'm remembering these names. And they would sign that I'd done it. And at the end of the week, you'd get your thing checked. There you go. I mean, I still fucked up and failed everything. But yeah, yeah. So I think, Around the same time, 
my mum had read of this little drama class in Leicester. Must have been around the same time, I think. If she listens to this, she'll probably go mad and correct me. It wasn't that, it was that. So she sent me along to this thing. She said, you know, maybe, because you like doing the school plays, this might, maybe it'll... And it was, you know, a life changer. It was a life changer. Um, And it was a fellow called John Gillane who died last year. Right. And it was like a sort of stage school sort of thing, but I didn't do any of that. I just did one-on-one with him and I didn't even do any of the plays and stuff. There were a couple of sort of Leicestershire competitions and things, you know, like the Shakespeare competition, the modern competition, the poetry reading competition. You know, and I always did, and I was never that bothered with the the classical things, always sort of wanted to do the modern stuff. So I did that. And then I auditioned for sixth form at Melton Mowbray. They had a, a brilliant drama A-level. It was the only place in the county that did it. I mean, again, it's amazing to me now. It's fantastic that schools have been doing, you know, do drama. A lot of them just sort of on the syllabus, really. I mean, it's, there was nothing, absolutely nothing. So I have to, I got into this thing, auditioned and got into the drama A-level, which felt like a very odd thing to be doing when you told people. They were like, is that an A-level? How are you doing that? Where is that? And the fact that I used to have to schlep to Melton Mowbray every day. And how far was that from your oh, It's house? about a 40-minute bus ride every right. morning and then 40 minutes home every night, you know. And I did that and absolutely loved it. Absolutely loved it. And um, Did you feel that you were there with a lot of like-minded people? Yeah. Yeah. Really did. And that was an amazing thing, actually. Because it's not like I'd ever felt like I was an outsider, but equally... It's not like I felt like I had a very nice upbringing and the Jewish community in Leicester that I was brought up, it was very close knit as in, as are a lot of sort of, um, as they were, it's very dwindled now, but a lot of the sort of, um, suburban Jewish communities, but it's quite suffocating, but it's lovely. You know, it's very cozy and, and I knew that I didn't, I was different from my friends in terms of sort of what my aspirations were, you know, I knew very early that film was a really, really, really big thing for me. And I sort of felt like I wanted to be part of that world. Did your sisters have any? No. Not at all. What do they do? Uh, One's a teacher and one... Actually, she's left teaching now because it's such a nightmare. She did it for years and years and years and years. And she's now involved in education. Um, And then my older teacher is a carer. Right. Uh, my elder teacher, my elder sister is a carer and uh, is great. And, and she didn't do great at school, but then as she's got older, I think because of the way school was really, and as she's got older, she's really re-educated herself to an incredibly high standard. It's really impressive. Do you think bef- before you went to Melton Robert to do the A-levels, was there a switch in you that went, I think this might be the path for me for my career? The switch was Jaws, was seeing Jaws. Was it? That was the thing. At the cinema? Yeah. So that was what, 77? Uh, yeah, so I'd have been 13. And we went to see Jaws, and I already knew that I liked drama, but it was seeing Richard Dreyfus and seeing this little, stocky, curly-haired, normal-looking Jewish fellow wearing glasses, and I just thought, fuck me. 
that's a possibility. Right. You don't have to be Robert Redford, as it would have been. Yeah. Or Paul, Paul Newman. Newman. You don't have to be these gods. Yeah. You could look like, you know, there's a different path. You could look like a, a you know, relatively normal person. And and that, aside from the fact that Jaws as well was just like, you, you know, like a visceral experience like I'd never had. So it's like the two things sort of, sort of hardwired at the same time. So from that, that was the big flick over. That was the big switch that I then thought I can do this. And, you know, God bless my parents. They were incredibly supportive. Were they? Yeah. I mean, aside from putting me on report, which I think they did as being supportive. <laughs> but they no, they were incredibly supportive. I mean, they had their doubts about, well, you should go and audition for, you know, well, after I'd done sixth form and I knew, well, I want to go to drama school now. And they, um, well, you know, what about going to university or doing a drama degree? Because then you've got something to fall back on, which is, you know, rational. Yeah. But sadly, this isn't a rational business, you know, and it's not a rational way. It's, it's not a rational way of thinking, being an actor. No. And um, so I just, I just knew and they were, they were great. I think my dad, if my dad had had his time again, He'd have been in show business, would he? Yeah, yeah. He'd have what, been. What th- was what was stopping him? Do you think? Have you ever have you ever had this discussion with him? Or? No, I think we talked about it very briefly. Um, but it's a very. It was. He's dead now. He's been dead for you know nine, ten years, sadly. But um, just a completely different generation. The idea of him saying to his dad. I want to be a comedian, which he probably would have been and been a very, very good one. It's very funny. Yeah, it's brilliant. Hilarious. Um, it, but in that way, I mean, he was funny anyway, but hilarious in the he could really tell a joke. I mean, even when he was very poorly at the end and couldn't talk, he could still time a joke. I mean, it was fascinating, the rhythm of that, how, how in his DNA that was, yeah. you know. And um, so, so I think that there was, and we'd always gone, you know, we'd gone to the theatre as kids all the time. And the pictures, it was a really big part of our family life was the arts, you know. And then mum and dad, you would go to, they would go to a lot of concerts and art galleries and stuff. That, that stuff always used to leave me a bit cold. But you know the pictures the monday night staying up to watch you know getting ready for bed and then coming down to watch the monday night on B- uh, the monday film on bbc one followed by film night i mean it's your idea of heaven then heaven yeah yeah heaven so that's entirely them so it's weird isn't it because on the one hand that's the upbringing and then it would have been churlish for them to to sort of be bemused as to why do you want to do that yeah yeah well because of the brilliant upbringing and how much I've loved all of that stuff you know and it just struck a chord and yeah really struck a chord so with the A-level stuff how did you do at the end of that oh I scraped by just enough that I needed to get my fees paid because you know it's been interesting listening to the your podcasts when people are talking about grants and stuff because we I never got a grant I got my fees paid but because my dad had grafted and was, I mean, we weren't rich at all. We were middle class, but we weren't rich. But, you know, as I said, he was an NHS dentist. Well, that means, you know, we we didn't get any money. 
So me being a oh yeah, maybe stop. Oh, oh, there, there we go. It was a false, false, false stop. <clears throat> yeah, it's so it basically it meant that my dad had to we pay for my living while I was in London. You but know. you did you did get all your fees paid? Got my fees paid. Yeah, but it's a weird one, isn't it? Because we'd have been better off paying the fees because it's not like fees are now and it's fucking nine grand a year or yeah. whatever it is that they're charging you. Do you remember what it was? I can't remember what it was, but it would have been. It would have been peanuts in comparison yeah. to that. That would have been manageable. Living in London, even then, yeah. you know, and certainly the irrational rate I was going to the pictures <laughs> when I was in theatre, when I was at Guildhall. But I bet going to the theatre was much cheaper. Much cheaper. Than what it is now. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's extortionate now, I think, especially it, in London. It's disgraceful. It's our biggest expense. As a family, it's our biggest expense. Is it? Yeah. Going to the theatre. But you know what's really interesting is we did, Jeremy Dyson and I wrote this play, Ghost Stories, and it was on in the West End for, it did 26 months. Wasn't it on at the Lyric first? It was on at the Lyric first, Liverpool Playhouse and the Lyric. Right. And then it went into the Duke of Yorks and it was at the Duke of Yorks for 13 months. Then it came off, did a bit of stuff around the world, then came back and it was at the Arts for 13 months. But my God, what a learning curve being on the other side of it and seeing part of the reason things are so expensive, you know. Could you divulge some of that? Because I, I don't know, I've, I've never been on that. Well, it's so like putting a play on. I mean, it's not like it's coming out of our pockets. It's the producers and what they have to work out. So it's like being on board a pirate ship, you know, the in terms of in terms of the charges from the theatres, in terms of the rent, in terms of the this, in terms of the that, the hidden costs there, the hidden costs here. Ah, you've got to pay that, don't forget, and this. Well, no wonder it's fucking 85, 90 pounds to go to the theatre because the producers are trying to make money. Yeah. And it's not their fault. It's not the producers who are at fault. It's not like they're, <laughs> let's charge 200 pounds a ticket. The costs are so prohibitive that to even break even, the risk is so massive. And it's... So there's loads of... I'm sort of being a bit vague. But not you, not about you, the money we took or didn't take. I'm being a bit vague because at some point, I suspect someone needs to really expose what the racket that's behind it all. And it's it's mental. Do you think it's just... Do you think prices like that are justified then? Well, I don't know that there's a way around it. When we did Ghost Stories, we wanted it to be the cheapest play in the West End. We wanted people to be able to come and see it, normal people, people who didn't normally go to the theatre, people who felt like theatre's not for them. Um, And we were very, very successful in that. Um, Our most expensive ticket was 45 quid, or 52 at the weekend it would go up to. Right. But you could see the play for, I think, 15 quid in The Gods, and most nights it was about thirty-five quid. This is only seven years ago, and it's not the it's not the biggest theatre in the world. So you're not no, even, if seven, you, even if you're in the gods, you're still going to get a good great view. Yeah, seven hundred and fifty seats or something. The Duke of York's was this. This was, was different at the Arts, and that was a fantastic thing. And it was incredibly exciting. I was in it as well to come out every night and a see it packed and b see it packed with people that you would not see in the theatre. You know. And that was an amazing, amazing thing. Oh, is that us? It is. Hang on a sec. Let me just turn that off. 
It's all right, don't worry. These things happen. Hello? Oh, can I call you back? I'm just in the middle of something. That's all right, so I'm going to turn the phone up here. There you go, I'll call you back. I'll be about an hour. All right, bye. Rather deliciously, that was my agent, <laughs> darling. <laughs> I'm if, doing two-shot podcast, my love. If I'm we're going to get interrupted by anybody, we get interrupted by Andy yeah. Nyman's theatrical agent, <laughs> which is a brilliant way. Oh, brilliant. Um... Um, anyway, so where we just put so in yes, so the thing what I was just going to say about the ghost stories thing was brilliant coming out, cheapest show in town, blah blah blah. You don't make money, so we are in taking the decision to make the play like that. You are, you know, Jeremy and I and the producers basically decided well we won't make money. Didn't lose money, but it's not like when you've had a plan in the West End for 13 months, you'd think, fuck, here we yeah. go, lovely. And everyone else, of course, thinks that. Think, how could you not have made £5 million each? I mean, it's it's like being in a play. Same yeah. thing. You're like, oh, well. You don't make money. No, not no. really. I'm sure, look, I'm sure there are, you can, but I'm just only talking about your experience. On our one experience. Yeah. And our sort of softly socialist value of thinking that theatre isn't just about theatre pe- posh theatre people, clever theatre people going, and that's not the play that we wrote. We wanted to write something for everybody. Um, so that was a big that learning is, curve. That is fantastic, though, what you said about being in the play and you look out and you see, you don't see what you normally oh. see. All these different people, uh, honest to from God, all walks of life that are all coming to see yeah. your play. I think that's fantastic. It was amazing. It was amazing that. And then times when you, such a weird thing because on the one hand you're like, God, how fantastic! But this is full of people who don't go to the theatre. How brilliant! And then there are other times you're like, for fuck's sake, don't you go to the theatre? Shut up! Don't you know how to behave? You can't sit <laughs> on the front row and eat fish and chips, which <laughs> you would get. You know, it's so it's a great dual thing. Um, but it, you know, it, now, of course, the other side of it is if we hadn't have priced it that way and we hadn't have done it that way, we might not have run for 13 months. Yeah. So you just don't know. You just, you just don't know. You can only do what you feel in your heart is the right thing to do. And your gut is, you know, it's the same. Yeah. You have to go with your gut feeling and yeah. nine times out of ten, you're never wrong. And that's the yeah. path you chose. I think it's a brilliant thing because, you know, theatres in general, well, not in general, specifically in, in London, Hampstead Theatre is a very different kind of audience. Yeah. Royal Court, it's a very specific audience. The yeah. National, I find, is a very specific audience. So yeah. it's, I think that's a great thing, what you did. Yeah. So obviously we're jumping around the timeline yeah, yeah, here. Yeah, right, yeah. Um, where did you audition for drama school after A-level? Did you audition at a... a audition for them all. Did you? Audition for every one of them. And was it... Uh, a spread, I had a spread bet. <laughs> Was it George that was helping you with your audition piece? Not George, it was uh, Ghislaine, John Ghislaine. Oh, that's John, John, sorry. So he absolutely helped me with my audition pieces. Um, He died last year and bless, his wife sent me, she found a photo of him working with me on my audition pieces and sent it to me. Really? Yeah, really made me cry when I got it, actually. I hadn't seen that photo and it was like, I look such a baby. 
you know. And my daughter, you know, both my kids are actors. And my daughter went, was at Lambda. And it was only, she sort of did exactly the same path I did, really, which was auditioned at 17, got in, started at 18. And it, it was the first time, really, that I looked at that and reflected on my own journey and was sort of moved by the bravery of it, really. I don't mean the bravery of my own journey necessarily, but we take for granted just how it's no wonder it's no wonder people go mad and turn to booze and drugs and stuff in this business. Because, you know, I'm sure there's every, every business has got its ups and downs, but yeah. we are constantly from 17. If you're if you, the path you choose is drama school. From 17, you are putting yourself out there in front of strangers that you probably, you might, you don't know who they are. And you're basically going out there, opening yourself up and going, do you think I'm good enough? Is it, do you approve of me? And nine times out of ten, there's a door slamming in your face going, Absolutely. No, no, With no really. reason. Yeah. Or, or we think you're really, really good, but, but, not, but not at the moment. Yeah. And then you have to cope with that. And... And if you're not a fighter or, you know, I came, you know, we've talked about, I had a very, very happy childhood and brilliantly supportive parents and family. And you've been, you know, blessed with being told you're really good your whole life. And, oh, you can do anything or whatever that your version of that is. And then suddenly you're auditioning for places where, no, no, you're not good enough. No, you're not brilliant at this. Did you worry for her when she said, no. Dad, you didn't... No, I don't worry for either of them. I no. love the fact that they've got a fire in their belly about yeah. it. Well, because they've lit... It's not like me coming from Leicester, not knowing a single person in the business and not knowing what the business is. They lived and breathed it. And they've, so, brought, they've grown up with it, obviously. Yeah. So, and that, it's not like... So that means that we can nepotism... The nepotism is that we can help them. Not, I mean, give them a tiny bit of help in terms of they know a few people, but it doesn't do anything really and truly. The truth of it is you've still got to put yourself on the line again and again and again. But how great that they can be guided in, in a way. Yeah, yeah. But again, you know, it'd be like your dad guiding you. I mean, you know, the truth is, I'm sure, I, well, I know that they respect me, but, you know... They're sick, you know. I'm sure they're sick of me going. Oh, you should do this. You should. I've had to turn. I've had to back off because I am a control freak and I want to be able to say, "Have you?" Well, I do do it. I'm yeah. sure they'll laugh and they say, "This is <laughs> when did you?" I didn't notice the moment you backed off. You know, because I'm. You just don't want them to make the mistakes you have made, and and we've learned the hard way. The value of. Well, you need to do this. Or you should do that. Have you followed up on that, or this, or that? And your agent won't hate you if you phone. It's your career. You need blah 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 blah. But you have to learn it yourself. Yeah, I think that's what I meant when I said, "Did you worry about her, especially at seventeen, yeah. going? No, this is the path." And, and, I, and it's great that you're so supportive, and it, you love that they've got that fire I and love determination. It. I love because it because that's what they're going to lead yeah. as it gets progressively harder. But I've also tried to lead by example within the family, which is we've never hidden the ups and downs from them because it's very easy when you're working and your family come to set or your family are in the dressing room in the West End or wherever it is to think, why wouldn't you think this is the greatest job in the whole world? 
This is just, God, it's wonderful. Of course they're going to think that. So we've also always, they've always known, oh, we can't afford to do that at the moment. Or we can't go on holiday. Or oh, I'm going to have to come back early because I've got this, you know. So so they know the, they know what the bumps in the road are. And they also know that I do five different things to to make a living because that's a definite thing you know actors sort of get paid the same they did when we left drama school in 1987 unless you're a star which 99.999% of us aren't the money's not good I actually think the money's yeah well it's all relative isn't it yeah of course 1987 you'd come out and you'd get a telly and it'd be like blimey 1500 quid fucking hell and and if it's repeated I get 800 pounds (laughs) whereas now it's like oh I've got a telly it's 1600 quid but hang on my actual acting fee's 200 pounds and everything else is buy out forever you know whatever it happens to be you know it's worse than it ever was it's worse than it ever was so trying to make a living you know that's why i think i think drama schools have got a responsibility and even if you don't go to drama school you have to embrace and understand just start writing just start making little films on your phone you don't have to show anybody anything ever start designing baseball caps start doing whatever the fuck you want just create yeah because you don't know what your path's gonna be and if you're 18 and starting to do that by the time you're 25 you'll be much better at it than you are now and you're not having to start that when you're 30 and your responsibilities are more and the fear is greater i just think that it's hard. The, the, I have a funny relationship with magic, I, you know, because I've been involved with it for years and created lots of magic and stuff. And I love it very much. But I also have an, an uneasy relationship with it. But one of the things that I adore about it is it really made me understand you can just create. You, you can just go and have a go at creating yeah. stuff anything and there's a creative process that is exactly the same whether you're writing a song whether you're inventing a magic trick whether you're writing a script whether you're having a dipping your toe into how you're going to do this audition it's all the same thing it's all starting with nothing taking a deep breath having a go discovering what doesn't work for you what does work for you it's all the same journey yeah i was listening to a writer the other day and he was Saying, look, look, just 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 write the script and get to the end. It doesn't matter if it's a complete piece of shit. You've got to the end and you've got the script. You don't yeah. have to show it to anybody, but you've got a script there. Yeah. And the next time you do it, it'll be better and it'll get better and better and better. I thought it was a really it's inspirational really bit of advice. It is true. Yeah. And there are, you know, there's a Jeremy and I write using there's a software called Writer Duet. That's writerduet.com, I think it is. Which you told me about, actually, the other year. It's I remember you telling me. amazing. It's an, because it's basically like Final Draft, which is the industry standard, which is really expensive. It's exactly the same thing. It's much, much, much cheaper. Jeremy and I, Jeremy lives up north and I live down here, so we collaborate. And it, it was, you know, you either do it over the phone, which is a pain in the arse, or you get on the train and go up there, which is difficult time-wise because we're both busy and it's 130 quid each time you do that. Of course. Or this software that 
just you can steal 10 minutes say do you want to have you know and up pops the camera and you're writing on the same screen at the same time but you can also do that yourself you don't need to be collaborating and can I just say now the two shot podcast is not sponsored by script duet uh, write a duet yes a duet. it's not uh, it's just something that uh, yeah, Andy it, finds very useful when he's writing because our, our past um, guest Will Ash does writing with his friend and sometimes his friend uh, has to be in Canada for six yeah. months of the year so they they do a very similar thing like that yeah. and they find what works for them it's brilliant but I think the point of any of those things, whether it's final draft or whichever writing package you write on, going back to what you said about writing a script, there's an amazing thing, which is these things format it for you. And they're really easy to learn. I'm bad at all that stuff. And it's very quick and easy to learn. And psychologically, it's an incredible thing. Even if you've written 10 lines, you suddenly look at this thing and think, oh my God, that's a script. That looks like a scene that I would get. Yeah. And you start to think, I could, I could write a scene. And there's a buzz. There's a buzz and there's there. a real buzz about it. And yeah. then you print it off and look at it and you, it's proper. Yeah. And it's just the strangest psychological trick that makes you feel, I can do that. I can really do that. Yeah. So, look, I do want to go back to drama school, but yeah, you already opened up something that I wanted to get onto whenever, because this is a very free chat. Yeah. But where did magic come into your life? Because obviously... We've talked about horror, but we didn't discuss yeah. magic. Did that come when you were a child as well? Yeah, it did. My uncle Harold um, had come to stay with us, and he always used to do, if we'd go and see them there from Manchester, if we'd go and see him in Manchester, he would always do, there was one trick that he would do that was just, oh, God, I used to love it. And I never knew how to do it. He kept, kept it secret for, I don't know, 10 years or something. And they came to see us in Leicester, and they were going to a garden fete and I was a bit poorly. So I stayed at home. I think I must have stayed at home with either mum. It would have been my dad probably because it was my mum's brother. And they came back and he'd bought a magic set for me. Just a, a normal sort of child? Yeah, 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 yeah. And I loved it. I couldn't really do anything. And like most magic sets, the instructions were really pony and you couldn't work it out. And the props were all plastic and not great but the design of it and the feel of it, it really excited me and there was a little magic shop and a joke shop in Leicester that I would then go to but it all really lay dormant um it was an interest that I had and and I had a couple of friends Jeremy has always done magic right and another good friend of mine at school Richard Cadell had always done magic he was young magician of the year actually was he yeah and um and it sort of lay dormant until the year I left drama school, or was leaving drama school, so 87, and Jeremy had moved to London. And he said, oh, I want to go to this, this Davenport's magic shop. I want to go. And I was like, oh, God, why do I want to do that? Oh, fine, we'll go. And I walked through the door and it was like, <gasps> again, it was just like going back to childhood in a brilliant way. And it just became an obsession. And it's a really expensive hobby. <clears throat> um, tricks and books. Re it's, it's expensive. And also, of course, it's obsessive. So, you know, you'd buy a book for or a pamphlet for 25 quid. This is then. Right. And a week later, you're going back to buy another one. Well, I was an out-of-work actor. No money. <laughs> Properly no money, you know. So after a while, you know, I sort of thought, I wonder if I could do this to earn a bit of money. And there was uh, 
a guy I knew who was a party planner. Right. So I sort of phoned him up and said, do you ever use magicians? And and so I met him and he said, oh, I hate magic, but I'll just book you. It's fine. You can clearly do it. It's fine. <laughs> Positive start. Yeah. Yeah. So I went out and started doing the odd gig. And it was, you know, at that time I was driving vans and lorries when I was out of work for like 30 quid a day. And this was 100, 120 quid an hour or right. something. So I suddenly thought, well, fuck that. I'm, not, I'm stopping driving lorries and cutting my hands on the glass that I'm cutting my hands on every time I have to do that or lift that thing up and drive across London. I'll do that. So then I just focused on that a bit more. So I started doing that when I was out of work. And, uh, and it just sort of grew very, very, very quickly. Were you practising constantly yeah, with the constantly, magic? Constantly, constantly, constantly. Because I've seen... I've seen a few of your tricks, actually, but what I find very baffling is your card skills. You have very yeah. clean yeah. skills. And I, that, for me, I just, even if I practised all day, I don't think I'd be able to yeah. do anything like that. Yeah. I just loved it. Did you find that came naturally? Not really, no. But I always loved I think because I've got... Because I'm squat and I've got little squat hands. When I was a kid, I always loved mime and loved... I loved the idea of illusion and I loved the idea of, of being dexterous to try and get around the fact that I found oh, bloody little sausage fingers, you know. Um, so, and then I was just gigging, you know, and that would become, and then I started doing kids parties. My wife worked at a kids party agency and I'd done, you know, I was very snobby about not doing that. And she phoned me up one day and said, look, we really, really need someone to come and do a kids party. And it's this weekend and it's 150 quid or something. Will you just come and do it? So I thought, okay, okay, I'll do it. You know, I loved it. So then was doing, you know, four kids parties a weekend, two on a Saturday, two on a Sunday. And maybe a close-up gig in the week. Well, what that meant was we were paying our mortgage. I was at home in the week with the kids. Well, my wife was... Um, she wasn't full-time then, actually. She was working at this other place, yeah. Um, and I was free to audition or anything that came up. And it was it, just the most amazing gift, transformative gift. And it it just took the pressure off us because it meant, well, you know, even if I'm not working as an actor, which I wasn't, you know, it just meant I... We could live. And you had another skill to pop Had another skill. Yeah. But I never thought of it as anything other than... I mean, I loved it and I still love it very much. But I never thought of it as anything other than a means to an end. It wasn't like I had aspirations to be a magician. You know, it was just like, oh, it's a cool thing to do. Um, but it's amazing how the, the knock-on of it is, you know, in terms of the way it makes you think and look at problems and stuff it's brilliant was it a bit of a hobby that kind of got out of hand yes or, yeah yeah it really did in the way that hobbies you don't i mean i care very passionately about it but in the way that things you don't really care i didn't care about it and don't care about it anywhere as much as i do acting it's like jesus christ i wish my acting career would rocket at the same level this is because this is i don't care about this at all you know so but again, there was a real lesson in that, in trying not to care as much about the acting and understand it was just part of the journey and yeah. part of 
my life and did you find it hard um to to take that notion of the caring less and yeah, try and apply it with, with that yeah, I mean because as I said it just then I thought well that's I'm saying that but that's completely fraudulent because I care you know again always with the caveat of aside from my family care about it more than anything anything obsessed with it I just adore it how funny then because when we were talking about your school life you were saying yeah you were it was mm. lazy and even with the drama a level you said mm. you scraped by mm. how was where, first of all where were you at drama school guild hall wasn't it yeah, yeah and how did you find your time there i loved it i mean i hated london for the first two years i hated it but I just loved drama school. Why did you hate London so much? Oh, because it was big and scary and... Were you homesick at all? Totally yeah. homesick. Cried myself to sleep for the first term. And, um, I mean, literally, I'm not being dramatic. No, no, I no. mean, I did. I was profoundly homesick. Didn't really have friends, didn't really make friends at Guildhall initially. You know, it took me a long time to really feel like, actually, these are proper friends. Um, felt totally out of my depth. You know, all of your insecurities for for me. Yeah. You know, it was. Cause I, I, was, I do think though, when people first start a drama school, if even if they look back on it, if they're very honest with themselves, they do. Everybody feels out of their depth. Yeah. I didn't feel out of my depth as an actor. As a person. Just as a person. Yeah. You know, I I always had blessed with a sort of confidence that. I never take for granted. And I, I try, you know, you try for it not to be an arrogance, but a confidence that means, you know, from my very first auditions, whilst I'd be disappointed if I didn't get them, I'd always think, oh, fuck them, they're loss. I'd be brilliant in that. Somehow I'd, I'd managed to have that because I think we need to, I, I, I honestly, honestly think we need to retrain ourselves to think that because the other option is all you ever think is, oh, Jesus, what did I do wrong? Yeah. What, why am I bad? Why didn't I get that? How, you know, as long as you've worked hard for that moment and that audition, then you can just think, well... Uh, yeah, I think, you know, and you're, you're not sounding arrogant at all. I think it's a great confidence to have because you've got to go into those rooms with people you've never met before and go, do you know what? I'm the answer. I'm the answer to your problem. <laughs> yeah. It's going to be fine without without being arrogant. Yeah. And I always think if I can walk out of a room having done that audition and go, yeah, I, personally, I felt I did all right. Yeah. And I'm I'm happy. With, I'm I'm happy with that. And then you have to kind of let it go. I'm so bad at letting it go. Oh, it's the hardest My thing in the God. world. Because also, you know, I think eighty five percent of the time, I walk out of the room and think, yeah, nailed that, nailed that. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, yeah. God, terrible. Yeah, but that not mean I've got the job. No, no, of course. Because you get 0.1% of the jobs. <laughs> yeah. But because then you think, what do you mean? Then? Why have we not heard? Can you chase them again? Been doing it 30 years. <laughs> 30 years. I, and I can't get to the point where I can't phone my agent and go, have we heard anything? I cannot learn the fact. You can't not do that. No, I cannot learn the fact that if they've heard, they will ring me. They will ring me to say, oh, did we not phone you until you got that job? (laughs) You know, I I can't. It's terrible. It's It's terrible. I'm smiling as I say it, but it's... It's terrible. 
It's just part of it. It is part of it. Do you ever do that thing when you walk out and you go, as you say, yeah, yeah, nailed that. And then a couple of hours later, you're still thinking about it and you're kind of dissecting that meeting and going, oh, actually, yeah, no, I shouldn't have done that or I shouldn't have. Yeah, I do. I do that. Oh, God, yeah. That the internal dialogue on the ones that you haven't done, that you haven't quite hit. Also, the miracle of you've worked on the script, you know it, you've worked it, you've gone in there, fluffed it, didn't get it right, and then you're on the tube and you can do it perfectly, <laughs> endlessly. <sighs> but that's another thing about trying to manufacture or re-educate yourself into that more confident place because the nerves are poison. The nerves are the thing, aside from a little bit of fuel that it gives you. Yeah. It's the most crippling thing creatively to be in a place where you're locked up with fear Um, because it means you can't hear a note or can't... I mean, that's what's fascinating having done, having directed now as well and auditioned quite a lot. For uh, I mean, auditioned actors as a director quite a lot. What's fascinating is someone will come in and... You're ready as an actor. What I've really, really learned, just getting in the room's massive, you know, because it's so, it's such a hard process that your agent's gone through and that the suggestions have come in to even have the directors go through and go, or the casting agent, yeah, 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 let's see those 12 people of the 75 suggestions because we've only got a day. We can only afford a day. And yeah. we're only, each one's a 15-minute block and we've got to have a lunch break and block. So even getting in the room is massive. The person comes in and it's, it's just a given that they're going to be good because they're in the room. They do the audition. It's really good. And you make a couple of suggestions just to see if they can take notes or also because the suggestion might be valid. And then, yep, 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 yep. And they just do exactly the same again. And that's a fascinating thing to watch because, because there's that thing we've all got, which is that fear of you think it's a massive risk as an actor when you think, oh, I paused there. <laughs> And I didn't when I was doing it in my bedroom. That was really brave of me. Uh, You know, those little tiny things feel massive. And yet, you know, I did an audition last week for a thing that that I was tearing myself inside out about. Should I stand up in this scene? Because it's a sort of interview scene and uh, sort of sitting down. But what if I want to stand up and they're film? you know, ridiculous. To to even, for that to feel like a challenge. Yeah. So you end up getting so locked up, um, you just try and... Be as free as possible. I try, suppose. really try, yeah. yeah. Was there a turning point at drama school? Because you said, you know, there was there was homesick to contend with, mm. uh, you, the, the huge uh, new world of London yeah. that was intimidating and you didn't quite feel yourself. Was there a turning point where you went, actually, no, this is, I've got yeah, my confidence I- back as, as Andy? As I'd gone home, I was in Leicester, it was an Easter break. And I remember thinking, oh, I wonder what's on at the pictures in Leicester Square. And I, and I can remember it so clearly thinking, oh my God, I am missing my life in London. And that was it then. That was it. But it's about so, it was a, and it took me a very long time, even after that, you know, I've been with, so for 27 years and it, it was a massive learning curve to realize 
I wasn't, as an actor living in London, going to be able to emulate the life I had had growing up in Leicester. Just, for instance, in a nice house with a driveway. Yeah. I wasn't going to have that. Yeah. Um, And, you know, I wasn't going to be at home, getting home every day at six o'clock, every single day, and having supper with the family every single day in the way that I had been brought up. Yeah. And it's because it wasn't like I was, you know, it's not like I had a childhood I wanted to rebel against and break away from. I wanted to emulate that safe nest. Um, and it's been, it's not been a difficult learning curve, but it's definitely been a learn trying to navigate how you do that as a freelance artist. And how you find your own version of that within a world where there isn't much security. Yeah. You know, how how do you how do you create try and create security when there is no security? You know. And I think weirdly that's become easier because the notion of a job where you're gonna get a golden handshake after fifty years has evaporated. Of course. You know, there aren't those jobs don't exist anymore, really and truly. I mean, look, even things that were even doctors, nurses, teachers, things that you think, well, that's a career for life. That's all gone. That's changed. So they just, that doesn't really exist, which isn't going back to how do I feel about my kids doing it? It doesn't bother me because what are the options? There aren't secure options. No, of course not. And also at the end of the day, it's about their happiness yeah. as well. As, as, as our happiness. Too. Yeah, yeah. So back at Gildor, do you feel you had... A sort of reinvigoration with with your work ethic, because you weren't that that lazy kid at school, were you? No. When you were at drama school, did you feel right? Yes, I always felt, and I felt like, and I did feel for the first thirteen years of my career, I had a lot to prove to myself. Um, did you get an agent straight after no, you graduated? No. How was graduation for you? Because obviously you saw other people uh, from miserable. your year. Right. Yeah. Well, because we had to do the horrible agents night thing. Yeah. Where you do your speeches. Then you walk, they made us walk around serving sandwiches. To, you know, in the idea that oh. agents are going to go, well, I thought you were shit, but that egg sandwich is lovely. Shall I yeah. represent you? Yeah. So it, all it did was compound people who didn't want to talk to you. You didn't come out of that and think, this is great. That was really useful, actually, being able to chat to them. So, yeah, it was... God, that's an awful thing. I couldn't imagine anything worse. It was a terrible notion. Terrible, terrible to do that. And actually, my daughter's... You know, I went to the Lambda graduation thing that they did, and it it felt like that had really come on. They'd really nailed what that should be, and it, it was very good in comparison when I think back to what ours was. Now, having said that, I did get an agent out of that night, and it was an agent I was with for 13, 14 years. Um, it just took a while um, for that to happen afterwards. It's not like someone, it's not like the next day when there were people getting letters. I didn't. It took me a while. Yeah. But then I always knew there was a guy, there was a director who worked on us in the, with us in the second year, a guy called Danny Hiller. He was a really good director. And he said to me, um, God, did I ever hold on to this? But he said to me, so this was second year of Guildhall, so I'd have been 19. He said, if you can get to 40 and this business hasn't fucked you, you'll be fine. 
I remember thinking then, 14? 40, <laughs> mate? I'm 19. What are you talking about? Um, but as the years crept on and 40 comes hurtling at you much quicker than you can ever imagine, I held on to that so much. Um, and he was sort of right, actually. You know, I sort of, I mean, I was about to say came into my own, but I don't feel that. It's not like I suddenly feel, oh, everything's easy now. Certainly easier than it was. Um, and part of that is you built up a body of work and, you know, got working relationships and stuff. But but also you, as as a, an artist, have got many strings to the bows. Yeah. You know, you, you've got the, the magic, you've got the directing. Yeah. And I also want to talk about your singing. Cause I've, oh. I, because, well, because I've worked with you... I know that you've got a very lovely singing voice, even though I've never seen you in yes. any of the musicals that you've done. Is that something that's all was always inside you anyway? The singing, it yeah. Was just a very, was it a very natural thing? Yes. Like I hear because I, I I always wanted to sing when I was younger. They're terrible, couldn't do it at all. Couldn't yeah. do it really at drama school. But for some people, I just got well. That's in you. That's natural. That's a natural thing. Yeah, yeah. I love it. I love singing. And then when I and I've always loved musicals. I mean, as a family, we just love them love them as well but i always loved them as a as i've got older actually and um you think that was something that was passed down from your parents not really no. sorry not, not the singing the, the love no, of theater no, uh, the love of theater yeah. definitely not the love of musicals in fact quite the opposite my my dad i think was i mean aside from sort of singing in the rain you know that we never really went to see musicals because that was always they weren't as good as plays Although I remember very clearly we went to see me and my girl at the Leicester Haymarket when it started, and that felt like, fuck me, that's amazing. Right. He was amazing, Robert Lindsay, and it was a brilliant show. And, um, but, but when I was at Guildhall, I really found, oh, I really love musicals and I love singing. But then again, that was a very big decision was I left Guildhall and I did a couple of musicals and, was aware that I was surrounded by very good actors who didn't work in anything other than musicals. And I thought, well, that doesn't sit with me wanting to do film. I don't understand. And you'd talk to them and be like, oh, I can't get seen for telly. I can't get seen for anything. It's just musicals. And it's not like they were rubbish. They were really good. Yeah. And so I just just thought, it's a trap. It's a real trap, musicals, if you're not careful. So I said to my agent, I'm not going to do any more. And I stopped. And I didn't do a musical for, I think, 23 years. And then I came and did uh, Assassins at the Chocolate Factory a couple of years ago, the Sondheim thing, that Jamie Lloyd directed. And that was the first musical I'd done in 24 years. Oh, God, it was heaven. Really? I mean, I was terrified. Absolutely terrified because yeah. it had been so long. Well, it had been so long, and also you're surrounded by people who are in musicals constantly. It's a sort of different discipline, you know. So they're all brilliant at what they do, and again, it's that actor thing where you suddenly your imposter syndrome goes mad, where you sort of think, "Why am I doing this?" Because literally everyone in this room is going to look at me and think, "Why." You shouldn't be in this. Yeah. Um, so you just got to try and kill that. And but I absolutely adored it, and it did make me think. Oh, I'd love to do another good musical. But I do love singing. Yeah. 
Do you still feel that now? Do you feel yeah, like you wanna... absolutely? Because I think that if you've already done enough stuff, it's just, it, you can you know your career. If your body of work is such that it allows you to sort of dip your toe dip in, in and out yeah. of different things, it's all right. Um, but I think it's easier to do that when you've done it for a while um, because you've established yourself in different areas. I don't mean with any sense of fame. I just mean your career is such that you've done that, you've done that, you've done that. Um, no, but, but you have had a very interesting career because you do dip your toe into comedy or you do dip your toe into quite yeah. nasty horror stuff yeah. and then you go and do a straight play or then you go and do a farce or a musical. Yeah, I love that. Well, it's you're very lucky. I think it's a yeah. fantastic thing. Was that was it was it a planned thing that? Well, I yeah, it sort of was really. I mean, I've always the the thing across all of them that I've always always wanted to do is and again, this is not saying I achieve it or this is not saying I don't mean this in an arrogant way at all, but I grew up worshipping De Niro, Pacino, that notion of losing yourself in the work and in the character. And so that was always a proper thing for me and still is a proper thing for me that if I'm doing something, I want to envelop myself into it as much as I can so that people watching it can only sort of think of you, you feel so committed and so alive within that world that they can only think of you in that thing. So then what that means is if I try and do that, then the next thing that I want to do should feel as different from that as I can. Um and on and on and on so that each time that's one of the things that I love but I don't know that the business loves that because you know when I look at my show reel that my agent puts together it's like five different actors you know because it's and I think that the business wants wants an easy job well and also it wants to have the business wants to have complete control because we don't have complete yeah. control but if we if we have those goals to go right well I, I kind of want I would love to do that now instead of doing the same yes. thing again and again and again but going back to what we said earlier that's another reason to do all those other skills because it means it gives you the one piece of power that we have which is to turn work down yeah that's it the only two things we can control are what we look like and I don't mean overall let's have but i mean in terms of just generally what we look like and whether we do a job or not yeah that's it yeah. and what we go in on well if you are solely reliant on it you've got no choice you're powerless yeah whereas if you're doing kids parties at the weekend you might it might give you the power to say all right well we can pay our mortgage without that i don't want to go away from home for six months doing that TIE tour, that's no sniffiness on that. That's not, you know, but it just gives you the power to go, I don't think that part's very good. I'd rather be at home. Of course. And so wait. interesting, and that's come back again, the power of saying no. It, it's come it's come over in, in other episodes as well, so I think it's fantastic that people are getting yeah. on that. Um, and this may seem like a very stupid question, mm. because I'm talking to somebody who has such passion uh, for the business. Have you ever thought about, or has there come a point Never. When you've gone, you Never. know what I'm going to say, don't you? Not once. Not once. Not for a second. To just stop it no. all? Not for one second. No. I I adore it. And it's not because I've had an easy path. I haven't. It, and still isn't. It's always one step forward, two steps back. Yeah. Always. Um, but no, I just, 
I love it as much as I did when I was 12. And you're still learning as you oh go on all the God. time. Oh, my God, every single job. Yeah. Every job you work with people that you think, oh, my God. Where you go, so I just went to see my, Macy, my daughter, in a play at Chichester. And, there was a, and it was brilliant, this thing called The Stepmother. And they were all, the, Richard Eyre directed it. It was fantastic. And the guy who was in the lead, I think his name was Will Keane, I know Will Keane is a fantastic Fuck actor. Me. In fact, I was talking about Will Keane last night to a couple of friends. I mean, on, honestly, Craig, I, I mean, you just, it's like a masterclass. I, I, I've been lucky enough to work with him. He's a, not only a lovely guy, but yeah, I was exactly the same looking at him. <laughs> How do you do that? This guy is incredible. Was, and the level of commitment and work and the whole, I mean, the whole play, I so hope it comes to London or something so it has another life for people to see it because it was phenomenal. But, God, it was just so exciting. And that is, brings us to another thing. I know we're rounding off and we're going to run out of time. But another <laughs> thing that's so important that we have to kill, at work at killing in ourselves, and it's impossible, but we have to, is the jealousy and the, the bitterness yeah. of fucking hell. Why didn't I get that? Why didn't I get seen for that? Yeah. Because it just destroys you. It destroys you. Yeah. And you have to make peace with that is the poison chalice that this job is. Um, And if you can, I don't believe we can ever kill that entirely, but if you can kill it 99% and not sit there and think, Jesus Christ, he's brilliant that bloke better than or i'd be better than that or whatever it is and just open yourself up to wow it's just so much healthier yeah because and and you do learn more so much more so much more yeah yeah andy um there is so many more things that i would love to sit and talk to you about (laughs) we haven't even touched on um how you started working with darren brown um, I'd love to come back. Maybe we can revisit it at some point. But for now, I'm really thrilled. You've welcomed us into the Nyman Museum. And uh, it's been a lovely time sitting down and spending some time with you. Thanks well, so much for coming. I really appreciate it. it. I've loved it. Cheers, Thank man. Thank you. I told you. How good was that? Andy Nyman. Um, as I said at the end, there is so much stuff we didn't cover um how he actually could have been uh the new darren brown but that's not what he wanted to do and uh, we didn't touch on his book that he's wrote called the golden rules of acting that nobody tells you um i'm not here to plug anything on this podcast but do go and have a look at andy's book um it's uh it's a cracking read um and yeah that's it i mean there's loads in there um, I loved spending time with him and I'm really, really thankful and chuffed uh, that he came on the podcast. I hope you really enjoyed it. Um, remember, you can subscribe. Can subscribe? You must subscribe. Please subscribe. I don't want to be begging, but yeah, do some subscribing onto the Two Shot Podcast. Um, you know, we're on iTunes, we're on Acast, we're on Podbean. Somebody actually sent me a message the other day um, to ask if we were on Stitcher. I don't know. Producer Griff is nodding his head. So, yes, that is. We are on Stitcher. So, uh, whoever uh, tweeted me, yes, you can 
listen in your car, on Stitcher. Happy, happy days. Uh, make sure you follow us uh, at the Two Shot Podcast on Twitter, on Facebook. We're on Instagram, remember? Some nice little photos coming out. Um, if you want to send us a message, you can. And we are emailing. Our email address is twoshotpod at gmail.com. Producer Griff, so happy that I remember all these things. Um, you can also get in touch with me personally at cparks1976 on Twitter. Um, and, yeah, that's it. Remember, we've started a Patreon site. That's right. Now you can become part of the Two Shot Pod family by just throwing a few shekels each month. We'd be very happy. It'll keep producer Griffin cables, train fares. All it is is just that we can afford to make other podcasts for you. That's all it is. Because we started out this, you know, in a a pub in Manchester. And now it's grown to this uh, something that we we really love. And I know that you love listening to it. So if you could help us out, go to the patreon.com site forward slash two shot pod. I think that's right. Oh, Griff, he's so happy with me that I remember. Um, And that's all. We will see you next week. Thanks so much for listening. The Two Shot Podcast is presented by me, Craig Parkinson, recorded and produced by Thomas Griffin for Splicing Block. Our music, our brilliant music, is courtesy of Then Thickens. Cheers. Cheers.